0: Colossians chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 5 to 17. Have you ever wondered why you dress the way you do? You know, why are we attracted to some styles of clothing and not others? How can we feel funny when we dress up in clothing that doesn't really quite fit our style. I bet if we were to walk into a large room full of different people that we didn't know, we'd probably be drawn to those who dress like us. Why is that? Well, we use clothing to send a message. Clothing communicates something about who we are. When we put on our clothes in the morning, we put on an identity. It communicates something outwardly about who we are inwardly. Well, today Paul's going to tell us how to dress if we're Christians, but he's not talking about physical clothing. He's talking about our character and our actions, how our character and our actions display outwardly who we are inwardly. They reveal our identity. He's going to reason with us this morning. If you are in Christ, which is what Stephen preached on last week, if you're in Christ, well, then dress the part. Display your identity as God's people by living and being and speaking like God. Well, that's easier said than done. In the Colossian church, they were feeling the pressure to conform their way of life to the beliefs around them. And if we're honest, we feel that pressure too to conform our lifestyle with the beliefs and the values in the world around us. Every philosophy and religion and worldview offers a set of beliefs in a corresponding way of life for their followers. Whether that be you know, New Age spirituality or Hinduism or atheism, you know, pick your ism, they all offer a set of beliefs in a way of life. They're all telling their followers to dress the part, to line up how you live with what you believe. That's what Paul's going to do in this passage. Dress the part of a follower of Christ. Line up how you live for Christ with what you believe about Christ. And if you do, then you won't be pulled away from Christ. And if we apply these verses to our lives as individuals and as a church family, well, then we can remain... And continue to grow into a healthy church filled with joy filled, healthy, growing Christians. That's what we want, right? We want to be a dynamic, healthy, biblical church, right? We want to display the beautiful character of our God in our lives as individuals and also in our lives as a church family. We want to do that for our children the next generation, for our neighbors, for our own joy and for the glory of God. So there's the target that we're going to aim at today. How can we be a spiritually healthy church filled with spiritually healthy Christians? So with that lens, let's look at Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 5. Paul begins by saying, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy talk from your lips. Do not lie to each other. Since you have taken off... Uh, since, "'Since you have taken off your old self with its practices "'and have put on the new self, "'which is being renewed in knowledge "'in the image of its creator, "'here there is no Greek or Jew, "'circumcised or uncircumcised, "'barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, "'but Christ is all and is in all. "'Therefore, as God's chosen people, "'holy and dearly beloved, "'clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, Humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievance you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And above all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You probably notice that this passage really breaks down into two big chunks Right, verse 5 begins by giving a list of sins we are to leave, and then verse 12 gives us a list of godly virtues, character traits that we are to pursue. So there's two big chunks here, but there's kind of one idea, one uh, illustration or picture that ties them together, and it's the picture of getting dressed. Look at verse 8. It says, rid yourselves. Well, that was a word used for kind of tossing aside clothing, getting rid of clothing. Verse 10, it says, put on. That's a word for putting on clothing. We see that same word, that same Greek word in verse 12, but this time they just translate it more directly. It just says, clothe yourselves. So the old clothes represent the old way of life, and the new clothes represent the new way of life now that we have put our faith in Christ. Let's start off by looking at the clothes that we are to take off. Paul gives us two lists in verses 5 and verse 8. And verse 5 mainly, for the most part, is talking about sins of the body. And verse 8 is, for the most part, speaking about sins of the mouth. And this first list is mainly about sexual sins. You see that first word in that list in verse 5? It says sexual immorality. That's an umbrella term the Bible uses. Under which all sins outside of marriage between a man and a woman fall. It's just a blanket term. And we are instructed to put them to death. Doesn't say dabble here and there. Doesn't say we highly recommend you consider other alternatives. Oh, it says kill it. Obviously, this clashes with the beliefs of our day. Our day is one of sexual expression. And here comes the Bible with a list of restrictions. Right? God says if you love me, then you will give yourself to me in mind and in body. Our day says, if you love me, then you won't restrict me in mind or in body. You know, today, freedom and restrictions, they can't exist, they can't coexist. They can't exist side by side. But I don't know if that's actually true. The tree kangaroo One of my favorite new animals. The tree kangaroo lives in the uh, tropical rainforest of New Guinea. And it's a kangaroo that spends its entire lives in the trees. They weren't made for the ground. They are slow. They are clumsy on the ground. Primarily because they have a really long tail. But in the trees, they're agile. They're fast. And they use their tail to help them climb and to keep balance. What restricts them on the ground gives them freedom in the trees. Now, we might say to the tree kangaroo, listen, in order for you to be really free, you have to break free from these restrictions, leave the trees, and start living on flat ground. But the tree kangaroo would say, I don't feel restricted in the trees at all. It's what I was made for. So here's the point. Real freedom doesn't mean life without restrictions. Real freedom means knowing the restrictions and the boundaries and then living and thriving in that context. God doesn't give us a list of restrictions like we see in this passage to be be a killjoy, to rob us of happiness, or to be unnecessarily kind of strict. He, He shows us the boundaries so that we can experience the joy of living and thriving within them. He tells us what we are made for, what sin has blinded each one of us from seeing. Freedom is found by living within right boundaries. Well, that's the first list. Let's look at the second one. Check out verse 8. But now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth, or from your lips. Do not lie to each other. So the Bible isn't only interested in sexual sins. If we reduce sin down to sexual sins, we've done exactly the same thing the culture has done. Reduced everything down to sexuality. The Bible says a lot, though, about violence and anger and slander. So often we Christians look down at people living outside the boundaries of biblical sexuality, but we don't bet an eye when we lose our temper on our kids, or belittle our spouse, or gossip and slander in the church or at the workplace. We might look down at those for their sexual sins, but we have no problem joking around about the very same things that we condemn. But verses 5 and 8 are actually directed at us inside the church. Paul isn't talking about all those little naughty boys and girls out there. He's talking about the person right here. He's talking about me. If we want to be the kind of church that that truthfully and lovingly takes the hands of of non-Christians and places them in the hand of Jesus, well, then we better make our conversations with them about him and not about changing their behavior. We have to remember that Jesus preferred the company of traitors and prostitutes over the self-righteous religious hypocrites who were far too busy Facebooking about everyone else's sins to look in the mirror at themselves. Don't keep these lists at arm's length. Bring them close. And ask yourself, am I dressing the part of a Christian? Or do I look like something else entirely? This is meant to be a mirror for us in the church. Is this me? Of course it is. It's all of us. But there's grace for people like you and me, for sexually immoral and angry people. We are called to be like Christ, but that's only possible because he became like one of us. And he was clothed in shame and in a crown of thorns for our sin. And he was clothed with new life in the resurrection. And so, in Christ and in Christ alone this morning, there's both forgiveness and power to change and to grow, there's hope. You know, we're able to put to death sin in us, but that's only possible because Jesus was put to death for us. So in these lists, we have a picture of the old clothes that we need to take off. But why? Why? Well, very simply, it's not who you are anymore. You know, we don't play for that team, so we shouldn't wear that jersey. We don't work for that company anymore, so we shouldn't wear our old uniform to our new job. You're no longer under the reign of sin and death, but you've been rescued through the cross of Christ, so don't live as if you're still under the reign of sin and death. Look at verse 7. He says, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. Right? That's past tense. That's before we followed Christ. And look at verse 9. You see a similar idea. It says, since you have taken off your old self with its practices... And have put on the new self. You know, when you, when you come to Christ, when you repent of your sins, you take off those old clothes, that old way of life. And you turn towards Christ and are, are clothed in his righteousness. A Christian that continues to live in those old way of life, it's like someone who forgot to take off her Halloween costume. Or better yet, it's like living in a corpse. Something that died when you first put your faith in Christ. A close friend of mine uh, passed away last year. He used to sit over here. Uh, his name was George. And he used to carry around that big Gandalf the gray walking stick to help him balance. Uh, he, George came to faith later in life, in his mid-60s. And uh, something really frustrated George when he first became a Christian. It took him a while to figure this out. Uh, it really upset him. He couldn't figure out why he continued to struggle with the same sins he did before he was a Christian. He called it the old George. He used to call me up upset and say, Dave, the old George came out again today. I don't like the old George. I don't want to be the old George. Well, he may have only been a Christian for a couple of years, but he understood something foundational about what it means to be Christian. He understood that when he fell back into those old sinful patterns, he was returning to someone who he no longer was. And he understood something about the Christian experience. That when we put on those old clothes, it might feel good for a moment, but eventually it feels off, like living in a Halloween costume. So there's the first reason we're called to put it off. It's not who we are anymore. Here's the second reason. God is actually at work in you to change you. So you get the two perspectives here, our work and then God's work in us. See that in verse 10? As you have put on the new self, which is what? Being renewed. Being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Did you catch that? It's passive. We're not renewing ourselves. Someone's renewing us. And it's present. It's happening now. Not in the future. Not in the past. We're being renewed. God, through the Holy Spirit, is changing us to be something. And what is he changing us to be? To image our creator. To be like him. And isn't that amazing? Isn't that so encouraging? That God is working in you to make you like himself, like his character, to love what he loves, to hate what he hates, to prioritize what he prioritizes, to treat people the way he treats people. So here we have, in this section, the call to take off the old clothes and to put on the new Just a simple way to think about this whole section is, let what God is growing in you come out of you, or or live out what God is working in. A simple way to think about this section. So a church that will thrive and remain faithful to Christ in a fallen world is made up of individual Christians who are all fighting to be more and more like Christ. And for the most part, this first section has uh, an individual focus. It's got a me focus, like me and God. Well, the next section we're going to look at, the next big chunk, has more of a corporate focus. It has a we focus. It's going to talk about us in the church, in our relationships. A healthy church is made up of individuals who are committed to living out their new life together in Christ as a church family. So how do we know that he's talking about the church family here? Well, at least two reasons. Look at verse 11. Verse 11. It says, here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. So he says here, and then he lists a bunch of diverse groups of people. Well, well, where is the here? What's he talking about? He's talking about the new humanity that's created by the gospel, the gathering of the new selves. He's talking about the local church. And the point of this verse is not to flatten or eliminate kind of cultural or ethnic distinction or differences. And when we we come to Christ, we all come to the same Christ, but we don't all become the same culturally. The the local church is a place where people of ethnic, cultural, socioeconomic, and generational differences unite around the gospel. So the verse is about the uniting power of the gospel. And when we realize how different these groups are, you, know, you begin to realize how much of a unifying force the gospel is. There was decades worth of religious tension between Greeks and Jews. There was centuries worth of societal tension between Greeks and barbarians. In fact, uh, barbarian was a derogatory term. It was an insult that Greeks used to, to refer to anyone who wasn't like them. To them, everyone sounded like this. Bar, bar, bar. So they called them barbarians. That's where the word came from. In the Scythians, they were like the worst of the barbarians. So here you have this Colossian church filled with different groups of people, and it must have made the outside world scratch their head. You know, what is a Greek doing with a Scythian? That just didn't happen. The unity and diversity of the church it really should confuse the world. We should look odd. People should say, "Why are these people getting together? Why are they spending so much time together?" You know, they have different hobbies—blue collar, white collar—and they come from different cultures. What is a 30-year-old doing hanging out with a 60-year-old on a Thursday night? Right? We should look odd because of our—we're we're uniting around the gospel despite some of our differences. A healthy church is one that shows the world that the gospel is the great bridge builder between different groups. Of people, like we read in Ephesians chapter 2. That's the first reason we know he's talking about the church. And the second one, quickly, is this phrase, one another or each other, that we see throughout this passage. And whenever you see that in the New Testament, it's a reference from one Christian to another. It's not talking about people in general, but Christians in particular. So Paul's focus is on what makes a church healthy. If we went to a spiritual doctor, they would test you know, to see if there are any diseases. And they would test for two things. They would test to see if a church has the character of Christ and the presence of Christ. The character of Christ and the presence of Christ. First, let's look at the character of Christ in the life of the church. Verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourselves, here's the new uniform, with what? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So he's continuing this, uh, this illustration of putting on clothes. Here's the, the clothes now that we put on. And this is how we dress the part of a Christian in community. But before he gets into details about what we should do and who we should be, he reminds us of whose we are. Did you catch that in the beginning of verse 12? He calls us what? God's chosen people, holy and dearly, beloved. So Paul isn't saying, hey listen, now that you're a Christian, you better pretend to like these people. He's not saying, now that you're a Christian, you better play nice at church. He's saying, no, you're God's chosen people. He loves you. He has set you apart for his good purposes. So treat each other as God's people. How does God want the siblings to treat each other in his family? That's that list in verse 12. Compassion, it literally just means bowels of mercy. Kind of a weird concept. But it it stays soft and tender towards people. Don't get hard towards people. Kindness was a word that they used for wine that had lost its edge or its bitterness, and it was now useful. So a kind person is someone who, who pleasantly makes themselves useful to others. Humility has this idea of not being all wrapped up in ourselves. Gentleness was a word they used for a tame horse. So it doesn't mean weakness, it means power under control. Is that how people who are under you would describe you? Would they say that you have power under control? And finally, patience. Someone who's not easily provoked. The image that comes to my mind is of a a big dog laying on the ground with a toddler just kind of poking and pinching and pulling, and he's just taking it. And he's not easily provoked. So there's the clothing of the new self. Looks a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? But there's one more piece of clothing, and this might be the most important. It's the one that holds the uniform in place. And if you don't have this, it's like forgetting to put the egg in when you're making a cake. There's nothing to bind it together. Look at this last piece of clothing, the overcoat of the new uniform. Verse 14. It says, above all these virtues, put on love. What does love do? It, it binds them all together in perfect unity. You ever wondered how your finger moves? Well, when the muscles in your fingers contract, little pieces of flexible tissue called tendons pull down on the bone. Tendons are like rubber bands that connect muscle to bone. And if you were to break one of these tendons to rip it, then your finger would be no longer useful. If you break love in the church, well, that church is no longer useful. Love is the tendon that holds together Christian relationships and churches. Love is, is the tendon that connects our compassionate bone to our gentle muscle to our patient bone. You know, it, it binds them all together in perfect unity. Love makes the church robustly Christ-like, by binding together all the things that make Christ so attractive. And what does it look like when love tendons are connecting bones and muscles in the church? What does that look like? It looks like verse 13. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievance you may have against one another. Uh, In healthy churches, people bear with each other and they forgive each other. Uh, The word bear here means tolerate the unique things about other people. It basically means put up with the things that people say or do that might annoy you. It's kind of a sobering thought. It got me thinking, what do I do that annoys people at church? Don't all speak up at once, and don't tell my new boss. <laughs> Families love each other, but boy, can they annoy each other. You know, if you're in the church, there will be times when you, isn't wonderful how practical the Bible is, how, when you will be annoyed by something that's, that someone says or does. What are we supposed to do when that happens? To patiently endure. To lovingly tolerate. To bear with them. Well, what if someone goes beyond annoying you in the church to actually sin against you? What are we supposed to do then? Forgive. I think uh, being hurt by your church cuts uniquely deep. There's something unique about it. You know, where do we find the strength to forgive if we've been hurt by someone in the church? Look at the end of verse 13. It says, Forgive as the Lord forgave you. When I think about what I have done to God, it is far worse than anything anyone could ever do to me. And if he took steps to forgive me, well, then I ought to take steps to fight forgiveness in my own life, in my own heart, especially towards my brothers and sisters. So a healthy church, it displays the character of Christ. Second, a healthy church is one where the presence of Christ is at home in our lives together. What does a church look like when, when Christ is at home among us? Let's look at verse 15. It says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called To peace. Rule means umpire or referee. Kind of a unique word. Umpire or referee. What's the the referee in the church? It's the peace of Christ. It's the peace that Jesus, through the cross, secured for us between God and man. Between God and us. And the peace, the reconciling peace that we have vertically with God, then defines and shapes and informs the peace that we have with one another. You know, the peace of Christ that that he secured for us on the cross is the umpire when there's conflict in the church. You know, if the church is starting to break apart and divide, the peace of Christ is like that yellow flag that a referee throws out at a football game. Stop the game, neutral zone infraction, members not living out their peace that they have together in Christ. You know, the church is meant to be a place where we actively pursue peace with each other. You know, without sacrificing biblical convictions or principles on the altar of false unity, we should give preference to peace over getting our own way. Paul's saying, don't let petty little issues divide you. Tom Rayner is an author and president of Lifeway Christian Resources, and on his blog he listed the most absurd and silly things that he heard caused arguments In churches. So these are real stories. There was an argument over the appropriate length of the pastor's beard. I kept it nice and tight for you this morning. Uh, One church argued whether or not to install restroom stall dividers in the women's bathroom. You blow the budget for that, all right? You just, you blow the budget for that. This is my favorite one. An argument on whether or not the church should allow deviled eggs at the church potluck. And here's a close second, an argument over whether to use the term potluck instead of pot blessing. We have so much in common as brothers and sisters in Christ, don't we? We have the same Lord, the same Savior, the same word, the same gospel, the same purpose, the same mission, the same goal, the same spirit, the same hope, and the same future. Let's not let petty issues divide us. So the peace of Christ keeps us united as a body. In verse 16, we see uh, the word of Christ then dwells among us as a people. That's what we see in healthy churches. Check out verse 16. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. That word dwell, it's a warm word, isn't it? It means let the word of Christ make its home among you as a people. And it doesn't say that elders, pastors, leaders should teach and admonish other people. What does it say? It says teach and admonish one another. Now, every Christian has the joy and the privilege and the responsibility to help other Christians grow spiritually. Spiritually. You know, the church is a place where we say, I got your back, spiritually speaking. I got your back. Uh, When I first became a Christian here at this church, a man, uh, he wasn't a pastor. He he was a member here. And he took the time to build a relationship with me with the goal of helping me grow to be more like Jesus. And we would meet together. I barely knew the Bible. He would show me who Jesus was and how to live. And he would warn me. That's what admonish means. It means warn. He'd warn me when he saw me drifting. He let the word of Christ make its home in our relationship. And as a result, he loved me patiently into a more mature relationship with Jesus. It's so easy to keep our conversations with Christians Christless. Hobbies, sports, weather, kids. Nothing wrong with talking about those. I've probably talked about the Pats game Far too much this week. There's nothing wrong with talking about those things. Someone's awake. Yeah. But that can be where it starts, but it can't be where it ends. Right? God's design for the health and the growth of the church is for the individual Christians to help each other grow. Yes, we hear sermons once a week, those are central and vital, but there's more to the Christian life than Sunday morning. We need deep and rich relationships with each other so that when a life inevitably blows up on us we have people who know us who can do what speak into our lives with wisdom in in ways that are appropriate for the person in ways that are thoughtful and unique to them and their context when i look back at my christian life during periods of growth and maturity You know what I see? I see relationships where the Word of Christ was at home. I see Paul and Pete and Reuben and Blaine. I see people in my growth group like Kim and Sean and Mark and Nancy and Randy and Laurie and so many other people. I think back to some of the greatest joys of my Christian life. I see people around the Word of God having each other's backs spiritually. Anthony and Adam and Chris and Harry. I see people who had the wisdom to know how central the word of God was to our lives and how important we are to one another. You know, we have to get this. If we're going to continue to grow as a church, we have to get this. It's out of the, the word-rich relational soil of the local church that the Lord grows strong and healthy and deeply rooted disciples. It's out of the word-rich relational soil of the local church that the Lord grows healthy and strong and deeply rooted disciples. So if you're here this morning and you've been living a solo Christian life, you're missing out on so much joy and growth and fellowship, and I want that for you. We would be delighted, the elders here, the pastors here, will be delighted to help you know what that looks like. Feel free to grab us, out in the lobby or here in the church, feel free to shoot us an email or give the, the church a call. We would love to help you with that. So the Word makes its home in a healthy church when we're helping each other grow, but also when we gather to celebrate God. Did you notice know, the verse 16 mentions singing? Isn't it interesting that the early church gathered together to celebrate God, to sing? I'm not sure what the differences between psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, but they were together and they were singing. Kind of humbling to admit as a preacher, but I know you're far more likely to leave this place thinking about the words we've sung than about the words that I have said. And that's okay, because songs teach. The Lord uses singable, God saturated, gospel rich music to knit our hearts together as a body, as we sing together and also to disciple us and mature us in our faith. Listen to good Christian music. So let's return to the question I asked at the beginning of the sermon. How can we be a spiritually healthy church filled with spiritually healthy Christians? Well, the long answer, of course, has been this entire sermon. The short answer can be found at the end of verse 11. Christ is all and is in all. A healthy church works into every ministry, every service, every relationship, and every disciple the truth that we belong to God. And because we belong to him, we love one another. And when a church does that, it's like throwing paint on the invisible Christ, and it makes him visible to the world around us. That's what Jesus is talking about after he washed his disciples' feet when he said, by this... All people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Let's pray. Father, because you have loved us so richly and so wonderfully and so graciously in Christ, help us to strive to be more and more like him and help us to grow more and more in our commitment and love for each other to be a compelling and attractive people who have the aroma of Christ for a starved world. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.